Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. morning we're going to be in Luke chapter 20. And the last time the message was titled, Is There Life After Death? Hey, that's a great question. Everybody's been asking that since the beginning of time. Is there life after death? And what we did was we took the Old Testament and the New Testament and we brought them together, various scriptures, and we made the case for life after death. And when you follow the Lord and you're close to the Lord, Right? You've trusted in his way of salvation. You know, that blessing is, is afforded to you. And, um, I mean, so many descriptors of the afterlife. It's not like some of these Renaissance paintings where, you know, you're a little angel with ringlet hair and you're just floating around clouds all of eternity. That doesn't sound like my idea of a good time, but, um, I, it just sort of kind of came about over the years in this one particular period, but it doesn't accurately reflect the scripture. So check that out if you didn't get it for free off the website. And today the message is titled, Importance from God's Perspective, right? Today we go through the world, we go to school, we go to work, uh, we have our friends, we have our family, and, you know, we maybe watch TV, what, what do famous people say, celebrities, popular, the educated, and there's so much information that's bombarding us in our brains, our eyes, our ears, our senses. Uh, but what we're going to see is that as Jesus was teaching so many years ago, um, these sort of little vignettes. Could you imagine following Christ? You get up in the morning, what's Jesus going to do today? Maybe he's going to feed a thousand people. Maybe he's going to heal some lame person. Somebody might rise from the dead. There's a parable. There's a teaching. It's, it's kind of fascinating. So he, he kind of, every day was a different day. And I'm trying to just take these little vignettes of his life, the biographies, the biographies that were written about him, and kind of show us where in all these little um, vignettes, so to speak, we find the importance from God's perspective. So we're going to look at this in five parts. And before we go into the scripture, the first part, before we even read anything, is the importance of the afterlife. So what's important to God? The afterlife. What's important to God? You. <laughs> because he created the afterlife and the, the new heavens and the new earth and the, the new Jerusalem, the city that comes down. Uh, you know, we see John tells us about uh, Revelation 4 and Revelation 5, God's throne room. And I believe that, you know, and some of it is speculative on, on the Bible teacher's part because all the blanks aren't filled in. But I believe we'll be able to experience all of those venues, right? with our resurrected bodies, and, and we live forever, and that's an exciting thing. So, the importance of the afterlife. Now, I kind of shared some of Revelation 21 in my prayer, right? We look at the news, we look at the world, we see the tragedy in Maui, uh, the war in Ukraine, all these kind of things, but Revelation 21 tells us that there will be a day where there will be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying, for the former things have passed away. 
And again, that's an exciting thing. So fill in the blanks. There's no more cancer. There's no more depression. There's no more PTSD. There's no more physical limitations. So you, you do what you want with those, those boxes, but there's a lot of things that, f- that fits into them. And last Sunday's message, again, I don't say it to self-aggrandize. I say it because it's a great portion of Scripture. So every once in a while, I just go over Scripture that I'm going to teach, and I'm like, this is going to be, I can't wait to teach this. It's going to be very exciting. So what's important to God in, in the t- whole teaching last Sunday is you getting to be with Him. He did give us free will to choose to stay close to Him or to pull away from Him because He loves us so much. He made us free moral agents. But at the end of the day, if we're in Christ, right, we, we go back to be with Him. And there's a lot of things waiting for us. Um, so jumping in in verse 39 of chapter 20, and we're gonna, I'm going to cover some of the things here. Uh, it says, Then some of the scribes, it was a certain sect back then, answered and said, Teacher, speaking of Jesus, you have spoken well, but after that they dared not question him anymore. Remember, when Jesus came to the earth, and again, you can look at Josephus, you could look at Tacitus, Roman historians, Jewish historians, um, even outside of the Bible, Jesus existed, he was a real person, and he did claim deity, and his teachings were recorded. So you, there was this sort of, um, some of the religious echelon who were concerned that he was taking some of the attention away from them, um, that they were trying to trap him in some of these uh, theological riddles that they couldn't. So verse 41, it said, And he, Jesus, said to them, so now he's questioning them, he says, How can they say that the Christ is the son of David? Now, David himself said in the book of Psalms, quote, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, David calls him Lord. How is he then his son? All right? So two out of five is the importance of Messiah's deity. So let me slow it down a little bit because there's a lot here. There's a really lot here in this simple Old Testament passage with which Yeshua, or Jesus, was affirming, but he was asking the religious leader, if you all... Okay, (laughs) so you go back to these writings, and you can look this up in the dictionary. You have what's called Talmudic writings. Uh, Jewish scholars over the centuries, you have the Gemara, you have the Mishnah, you have the Midrashim, you have all of these different writings. Some of them were oral traditions passed on, some of them were commentaries, and they're divided up sort of into volumes. So if you go back, way back, this scripture, all of the rabbis agreed that this was messianic. Now what are we talking about? We're talking about Psalm 110 verse 1. So let's go back into the Old Testament. Jesus is quoting this in the first century. And it goes like this. The Lord, right? this is King David, by the Holy Spirit, speaking about the Messiah to come roughly a thousand years before the Messiah comes. So the Lord said to my Lord, who's he talking about, right? Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstools. Your footstool, Okay? Well, let's go into this. King David is referring by the Holy Spirit in this prophecy. You have him in Isaiah. You have him in Jeremiah. You have him right all throughout the Scripture. In Psalms, uh, King David uh, was a man after God's own heart. By the Spirit, he would say things. 
and they were utterances that didn't come true in his lifetime. And that's what prophecy is a lot of times. You say something, it's a future occurrence, it's in great detail. It can only be from God because nobody can predict the future, right? We're limited as human beings in that sense. So David is speaking about his great, 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 continue on, grandson, who wasn't born yet, calling him Lord. Now that's interesting. In that society, first of all, you wouldn't call any of your live children Lord. You wouldn't call them in the Hebrew Adonai, Master or Lord. So David, the king, and there's a certain amount of pride and accomplishment that comes with that, would never call his offspring, who he didn't meet yet, his master or his Lord. So Jesus is posing this riddle to them and saying, how do you explain this? Right? Just one verse. Fascinating stuff. And you can't explain it unless you see the deity of the coming Messiah. Because what we see in the Old Testament is the Messiah is right the root of David. He gives David life. He comes before David. But you also see him come as a human being in the line of David. So this is a tough one for anybody at that time who weren't open-minded to see what the Lord was going to do. Now, you know that I do a lot of homework on this, so this is something that not everybody can swallow right away. In Deuteronomy 6, the Shema, right, of Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. In that short verse, there's three references to God. I'm going to save the best one for last. The one is, well, Eloheinu is our God. Elohim. There's a plurality in a sense of who God is. The Hebrews would use Elohim, El, depending on the context. So, that's one. In the short verse, two is Echad, Echad, as opposed to Yochid, which is a compound unity or united one versus a solitary one. That's very key in the Old Testament to explaining who God is in His essence. Remember, God made us body, mind, spirit. So in a sense, we are three in one, but we're the same person. Fascinating, isn't it? I'll leave the last one, Adonai. So in Deuteronomy 6, our God is called Master Adonai. So why in Psalm 110 would David call someone in his line Master? The same word in Deuteronomy 6 that is used for only God. It's a good riddle, isn't it? And the answer only comes when we understand that the Messiah was fully God and fully man. Right? And there's two camps today in Judaism. I've done a lot of study on this. The people who debate the Messiah, even today, they're like, is he Messiah ben David? Is he the conqueror? Right? And a lot of the first century religious leaders rejected Jesus because they wanted what they wanted. They wanted the God to come first as the conqueror to take over and vanquish Rome so they could have their land back. I get it. Understandable. But the other camp says, and even today, there's a large contingent of Jewish people that say the Messiah will be Messiah ben Joseph. He will be gentle. He will be encouraging. He will be lo loving. But here's the thing. They're both right. <laughs> he came, if I can take liberties with some of the terms, he came as the Ben Joseph, the gentle, the loving, the saving us first, but he will come later as the Ben David. So he fulfills both roles. You see this in Isaiah, you see this in Psalms, you see this in all the scripture. 
And a lot of the rabbis had questions about this. And even in the first century, they still couldn't answer that question because they weren't open to the fact that God came he, you know, as, in the form of a man to die for our sins. Right? The perfect sacrifice. And that goes back to Leviticus 11, uh, 17 in the Old Testament. So this is pretty heavy stuff, and they don't really, they don't really answer the question. The irony here is that Jesus was asking them to explain the essence of the Messiah while he was standing right in front of him. Revelation 22.16, again, Yeshua, Jesus is called the root, the offspring of David, and the bright and morning star. So he's the, he's the offspring of David, literally physically, but he's also the root of David. He came before David, right? So again, the only way to explain it is fully God and fully man. And I'm using, I'm using a lot of the Old Testament here. So Jesus is basically saying to them, you claim to study God's word, but you don't know who I am, and I'm standing right in front of you. Now, before we're too hard on this, listen, I've had, my blessing is, I've had to read 2,000 years of commentary, so I don't want to be arrogant and go, oh, it was obvious. Maybe to me it wouldn't have been obvious back then without all of the scripture and the canonization and the, you know, the, the referencing and the fulfillments, right? We get to enjoy that in 2023. The, the, the commentary, the rabbinical commentary of prior to the first century, there's a lot of information that we can turn to if we're curious, if we want to know. Do you want to know God? Search the scripture. Search the Old and the New Testament. You'll find him in there. So, uh, pretty neat stuff, but let me just say this. Sadly enough, there are even those today that go to churches, that maybe the churches don't teach the Bible, or maybe they go to church for various reasons, but not the right reason, to get close to God, which is the right reason. And they also come to the wrong conclusions. In the Scripture, you will find life. Right? That's, that's the manual. You, you, you go to, uh, if you're a surgeon and you go to do an open heart surgery, you've got to follow the manual. Right? This is the spiritual manual for all of us. Amen? amen. He just said amen. I heard him. <laughs> um, so we continue on, verse 45. Right. It says, Then in the hearing of all the people, He, Jesus, said to His disciples, Beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the best places at the feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. Wow, that's powerful stuff. Really powerful stuff. You know, <laughs> there are, every so often somebody comes to the church and they take me aside and say, you know, Pastor Joe, somebody told me about this church, but I wasn't sure I wanted to come because I'm done with religion. I don't like the hypocrisy. I don't like the fact that you know, it's sort of like a closed club sometimes. And, and every church can have a different feel to it, so to speak. But I'm going to give you a chance. And, you know, they start to hear. And I, I tell them, you have a problem with hypocritical religion? Well, so did Jesus. Right? He devoted an entire chapter, Matthew 23, to excoriating. So the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the thieves, you know, the people who were involved in sexual immorality. He was gentle. He was kind. He tried to get them to come closer to God. You know who he was the hardest on? The corrupt religious system. 
Right? So if, if that's your beef, well, you've come to the right place. Just read the scripture. In these words are life. Jesus had the same issue with these things. So three uh, out of five is, is the importance of genuine religion versus empty religion. And it's interesting because I, I kind of think of today, you know, human nature doesn't really change. The Sadducees, and we covered them, you know, a few Sundays, right? The Sadducees had a very liberal interpretation of the Word of God. Everything was watered down, and it was basically, they, they picked and choose from God's Word to suit their own needs. So the funny thing is they were the liberal version, right? The, the, the scribes and the Pharisees were more of the conservative version of today. Is they, Their doctrine was better, but their behavior was poor. So they were both wrong. And that's a little underhanded, uh, or it's not so subtle anymore. You know, if you're looking for a, a political party to save you, forget about it. Oh, I'm, I'm liberal. Oh, I'm conservative. And people fight over this stuff. Families don't go to Thanksgiving and the holidays over these ridiculous arguments. The only one who's going to save you is Jesus Christ. It's not going to be a politician. It's not going to be a, a philosophy. It's going to be Christ. So... Jesus was kind of showing both of them that they had their flaws. Now, let's look at the disingenuineness of this religious system, right? What were the issues? I grew up in religion, and I'm going to tell you something. When I read this, I'm like, oh, I remember that. I remember that stuff. And again, maybe the church you grew up in was better, but I, I didn't have great experiences. So let's look at the first thing. Status, robes, the accoutrements. And some of these high religious leaders do it today. It's the, the fancy, you know, Gucci and Armani, you know, religious robes. I don't know if they make them, but, uh, you know, they have the staves and the hats. And it's like the more accoutrements you get, the holier and righteous, more righteous you are. But Jesus had a problem with some of this attire. Why? Because the attire separated them from the common people and gave them status above the common people when they were supposed to be among them. So people felt uncomfortable. They felt left out in religion right? Back then, today, people don't change. Two, the recognition and the acclaim, the greetings and the best seats. Again, the religious leaders, wherever they went, there was an entourage. They had their entourage, they had their bodyguards, you know, they literally, they were to sit up in the front, um, in, the, in the, you know, the elite chairs and, and who was up front. And do you don't see that today in religion? Some of these big religions? Who is that person? He doesn't speak for me. He's not even talking about Jesus. He's talking about globalism and all kinds of political things. So um, the recognition they love from people more than pleasing God, which God had a problem with. Three, they practiced avarice. They devoured widows' houses. Religious predation. And I, I, I'm, I heard, I've heard of, I haven't seen it directly, that there are some maybe denominations that find elderly people who maybe have some wealth and they talk them into signing their homes or whatever to the church when they pass away. That would, to me, that would burn my conscience. I could never think of doing something like that. But it happens today. It happened back then. Right? Jesus has the mind of God. He knows these things. I guess when you get into maybe a clergy position and you start to go up the ranks and there's more comfort and there's more wealth, I guess your, your heart changes. You're not for the people anymore, leading them to closer to God. You're for yourself. 
And Jesus keyed in on that. But 2,000 years later, we still see the same thing. Four. And again, if, you get, if some, anyone's getting tweaked by this, I didn't say it. <laughs> I'm just telling you what Jesus said, right? Four. They put on a show. You know, for a pretense, they made long prayers. They made long prayers. You know, I go for a walk and, and I do my best praying to God walking and when I'm driving by myself and I just have time and I just, I talk to Him. Thankfully now we have Bluetooth in the cars so people don't like pull up next to me and think I'm crazy talking to myself. They, the Bluetooth, you know, it's the heavenly Bluetooth, right? But basically, um, I just talk very openly with God. He knows my heart. I'm not going to try to manipulate him or speak flowery or try to get him to do something like I'm in a courtroom, you know, arguing a case. No, I'm just going to be myself. But these religious leaders, you know, it was a show. They would, their words were flowery. They were almost, uh, there was a cadence to it. You ever hear like somebody do that and you think, are they, are they talking to themselves or are they talking to God? And that's the big thing. They ceased to talk to God but they pretended to. Now, what does this have to do with the importance that God sees? Well, the people were uh, distracted by the religious accoutrements, investments, and status, but what God wanted was genuine religion, genuine spirituality. He wanted His so-called representatives to do their job and represent God to the people. Right? And you even see this in, in the Old Testament. The priests and the prophets. With the priests, they took the, uh, the sacrifices from the people and they, they, they stood in the gap for them to God. And the prophets, they would take the messages from God and they would hand them to the people. I mean, God had a great system. It went in both directions. Pretty neat stuff. Um, Revelation 20... Or, I got Revelation 21 on my mind. Luke 21, 1 through 4. So let's look at the, the next vignette. And he looked, so this is all happening at the same time. And he looked up and saw the rich. So Jesus sees the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. And he also saw a certain poor widow putting in two mites. Dink, dink. So he said, Truly I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than everyone. Wow. For all these put out of their abundance, they have put in their offerings for God, but she, out of her poverty, put in all the livelihood that she had. So four is the importance of sacrificial giving. Well, basically at the time, and the temple doesn't exist anymore, uh, the only part of the whole system with the, the temple mount and the, the gates and everything is what we would know as the wailing wall today. Uh, if you do study history, it's actually quite fascinating uh, to study the temple and the building and, and you know how everything worked. But they had these courts. They also had these offering boxes. And you know sometimes people would kind of hang out there and observe what was going on. Then you would have every so often your, your elites, your wealthy elites that would come up and by the, their manner of attire and their entourage, you could say, oh, I wonder what they're going to put in. And they would take the money out and they would maybe make a show of putting the money in the boxes. And it was, um, it was something that people watched. However, while everybody's looking at the big donors, Jesus is looking at this poor widow. And she is the one that he honors. I can imagine 
Jesus looking at her and kind of tapping his followers and going, you know, your, your gaze is in the wrong direction. And them maybe tapping each other and going, what? Who? Because she would be insignificant in society, right? But she was the hero of the story. And he's challenging his followers back then. He challenges us today too when we read the Scripture. How do we look at good and bad in the world? By what the media tells us? By what the academics tell us, really? How do we look at greatness and smallness? You know what Jesus said? You want to be great in God's eyes? Serve others. Humble yourself, right? How do we look at character? Well, let's go a little deeper with this. A mite was about 1% of a day's wage, which you couldn't really buy anything. So some people might say, oh, it's just she put in two mites, big deal. Let's look at these guys, you know what I'm saying? Uh, it, it attracts our attention. But the active word is proportional and sacrificial to what she had. Jesus was amazed because being who he was, he knew what she was, you know, he had that, he's fully God and fully man. He had that intuition. He knew what she was putting in. He knew what her livelihood was like. Uh, So, you know, he knew all these things. And proportionately, she gave a lot. She sacrificed in her giving. What would we say today to someone who gave a million dollar donation? Right? Well, it could be Jeff Bezos, could be Oprah Winfrey, it could be Zuckerberg, Musk, it could be, these guys are, and ladies are multi-billionaires. They got more money than they could imagine. I guarantee if they go to take a million dollars and give it to some foundation, the media will be there, the journalists will be there, the snapshots will be there, people will be taking selfies with them because they're celebrities. Is it, is it really that much that they're giving? Oh, you say, Pastor Joe, it's a million dollars. Are you crazy? That would change my life. If you're a multi-billionaire, do the math. A million dollars is a fraction of 1%. They'll make that back in a few months through their investments. It's nothing, right? But what about somebody who gives, and they, they, from their heart they give, and they, they don't have it to give? That's a big difference. So, you know, you could kind of see if you bring it up to today's uh, society in today's world, uh, it's a big deal. Do we give sacrificially to God, right? And let's just, let's move off of the money thing, right? Let's talk about the, our time with the Lord. Now to me, at my age <laughs> and in my busyness, my time is actually worth more than money. So on the other, right, the other extreme, somebody may just write a check and just put it in the basket. I, I don't want to serve. I don't want to be bothered. I just have a busy life. I don't want anything to interrupt it, but I'm going to write a check. You know what I'm saying? So that's the other extreme. So are we sacrificial with our devotion to the Lord? Right? I'm not one of those pastors that says, you, you better read a chapter every day and you pray for an hour. I, I don't do that stuff. You do it as from the heart. For me, it could be when I go for a walk. For somebody who's maybe retired, they may spend that time in their living room praying to God. Some people are on their knees. Some people are laying down. When I go to sleep at night, I pray. Right? It's, it's to the individual. I, I kind of pray in, in, in short vignettes. And that's my favorite word today. Uh, where others may pray for just a very long time, for an hour. I've got to be honest with you. I don't pray for an hour straight. Because after a while, I run out of things to say. 
And then maybe in the afternoon, I'm like, oh God, I, I remembered. I, sh- I should pray for this as well. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, we don't want to force it on people, but, but are we devoting any of our time, any of our effort to the Lord? Right? I, I told you the story about how James and I met. And uh, the Lord diverted me. He basically said, just talk to him about Jesus. So I kind of was like, I didn't actually hear an audible voice. But the third time I heard it, I'm like, uh, that must be from the Lord. And here we are today, right? You never know what the Lord is going to do. You minister to that person in the, in the waiting room. You, you help somebody. Um, you might not see it until you get to the kingdom that that person is there too because you reflected the light of Christ. So there's a lot of, a lot of, a lot of ways we can look at this. Uh, and they're all very powerful. Pastor Paul just taught a message um, a few Sundays ago that which cost me nothing, about King David. How King David didn't want to give to God what he got for free. He wanted there to be some skin in the game for him. Oh, he was the king. People gave him gifts, land, right? All that kind of stuff. He's like, no, no, I don't want to devote this to God because I got it for nothing. You know, I want there to be something in there that, you know, there's a little bit of a sacrificial giving in there. So, interesting discussion. And if you're a new believer, don't panic because you're just learning these concepts. So why does Jesus even bring this up? Well, let's look at American culture. What's American culture focused on? The flashy, the celebrities, the wealthy, the trendy, right? YouTube videos, TikTok videos, some of them are good. I learned how to replace part of the siding on my house from looking at a YouTube video, but I'm not obsessed with YouTube either. You know, it was something I needed to get done. So, you know, it's, we don't come up here from the pulpit and tell you how to run your life, you know. It, but it's just like, what are, we, what are we focusing on? What are we focusing on, right? Now there's something new, and again, at my age, over 50, I'm learning these things about our generation. Uh, what is it called? TikTok influencers? Right? Social media influencers, some, somebody who's charismatic gets on, takes a video of themselves. They get, they get like a million people like following their stuff. And it could be trendy or dumb or witty or whatever the case may be. Actually, there was one guy who wasn't careful with his words. I don't even know. They said his name. I, I never heard of him. He was a social media influencer and he caused a riot in New York City because he said he was going to give away like technology and stuff. And people, well, where, where's, the, where's the iPad? And, and they had to actually take him away because his life was threatened. And then they have and been charging him for uh, um, starting a riot. But, uh, you know, whatever. I mean... We see somebody on TV and they're, they're a little hip and we think, oh, I'm going to follow this person. This is the problem with our culture. People are looking to be fulfilled, but they're looking in all the wrong places. And that's why, you know, we need to spread the love, the, the, the salvation, the message of the gospel, the hope, the encouragement that comes with these things. Because what our culture is trying to sell us isn't going to do the trick. It's not going to do it, right? Um, you know... I'll just leave you with this, and then we'll move to the fifth part, is that, so I had a a friend, and he told me, at the church he grew up in, they actually had collection envelopes, and the envelope said, no coins, only paper money. That's messed up. That's so messed up. So we, on a Monday morning, we count the collections, and there's a camera, and everything's done above board, uh, multiple witnesses, and inevitably every monday we empty it out and there's nickels and pennies and quarters and you know what i smile because i think i bet you a child did that maybe they learned something and they don't have anything right i have no money but they had a few coins they put it in there 
Maybe it was somebody who was poor and all they had was their... Honestly, we don't want anybody's money. Just, just saying. But think of the heart of the person giving. All I got is the change that's in my pocket. When you put something like that on an envelope, this is why religion becomes a business. And we have to fight against that because that's not what God sees as important. He didn't ask for this to happen. Not in Judaism, not in Christianity. He did not ask for it to become a bloated business where we don't think of the little guy, which is the thing. You look at all through the Old Testament, right? The the children who, who didn't have fathers, the widows, the orphans. And God told His people, you need to take care of them. You need to take care of them. So... I, I, I find it abhorrent to know that a church puts that on their envelope. What does a little child think when they read that? What does somebody who doesn't have money think when they read that? Is it going to influence our budget one way or the other? It's not. But it's the heart of the giver that matters. And Jesus focused on that woman that said to say, and it might have been me too, so I'm not picking on them, that his followers might have missed her too. As the observers were watching all the wealthy elites and their focus was there, only Jesus was focused on this poor woman with her dink, dink, her two mites. Verse 5, last few verses. Then as some spoke of the temple. You've got to see some of these, actually the templeinstitute.org. They're looking to rebuild the temple and it's going to be dicey because there's some political issues with some of the religions on the Temple Mount today in Jerusalem. But if you go, they have renditions of what that, the ancient temple must have looked like. And it's incredibly beautiful. Now, this was God's house, right? This is what's supposed to be His house. It says, As some spoke of the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and donations, Jesus said, These things which you see, the days will come in which not one stone will be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. So they asked Him, saying, Teacher, but when will these things be, and what sign will, be, will there be when these things are about to take place? So five out of five is the importance of prophecy, right? So they're looking at the, the wealthy, putting in donations. They're looking at the temple with all its splendor. You've got to read some of Josephus's. Uh, I, I really got into Josephus a little while ago, and he was actually a priest... He was a Jewish aristocrat. Um, long story short, he went through some changes and eventually became a historian. And his descriptors are incredibly detailed about the life and the times in Jerusalem at that time. Very powerful. And again, there were Roman historians. There was all kinds of historians. Uh, but they talked about the splendor of the temple, how grandiose it was. Here's the problem. Here's the problem. God... God was more concerned about His temple, His house, being a place where people could come to worship, right? We just covered that. A place where sacrifices for sin could be made. God had a plan for all these things so that the people, He and the people could get closer. Interesting story, a few uh, decades B.C., Herod the Great. Actually, he was an evil man. Herod the Great was one of the Herods. He killed members of his own family. He was, a, he was a Herod. He was wealthy, but he was paranoid. I believe he killed, I have to look at my history books, I think he might have killed two of his sons worrying about them you know, uh, doing a coup or something like that. 
But Herod did a, uh, an expansion and restoration project on God's house, on the temple. God didn't ask him to do it, especially not with his bloody hands. So he, it probably is a way for him, it, it, try to do a little forensic psychology here, it's probably a, a way for him to feel, you know, I've done a lot of bad things, and, um, you know, let me make it easier so I don't go to hell or something like that, whatever. But he spent, probably in today's numbers, it would be... Uh, possibly tens of millions of dollars putting gold and, and decorations and, and expanding. So a lot of what they saw was really beautiful, but they were from dirty hands. Remember in the Old Testament, God said to David, you're a man of war. I don't want you building my house. I want your son to do it. Right? He's starting off good. He didn't end so well. But um, So why would God want Herod the Great to do this? I don't think he did. But the onlookers, right, were caught up with the ornateness, the splendor of it, the gold plating. When the sun shone on it, uh, Josephus says that it was blinding to look at. Hammered gold, the patience that it took to hammer these ingots of gold and make them real thin and, and to plate uh, part of the building with it. So the sun shines gold is beautiful, but it was, it was blinding when they looked at it. White marble uh, that from a distance you could see that it looked like there was snow on the building. Uh, incredibly large quarried stones. One stone measured 40 feet by 12 by 12. They did have a, a, an ancient hydraulic system way to move those things, but it probably was at a local quarry. Uh, so people would look at it and they would be blown away. But again, I read about a church, and I don't know where it is, and if it's a church that you follow, I don't know what to say, but a church that actually bought in their lobby a $100,000 chandelier. And this is, this is a fact. I've got to go back into where I read it, but um, hundred grand for a chandelier so that when the peop people come in, the light would reflect off the crystals and it would just be, whoa! But what was coming out of the pulpit? You know, was the chandelier the light or was the Word the light? So listen, nothing's changed in two millennia. However, Jesus was making them understand that you're so focused on the splendor, but it isn't going to last. Now, we know from history in A.D. 70 that the Zealots and the Sicarii got together and they sort of forced the people to, you know, to fight against the Romans, and obviously it didn't end well. But we're going to talk more about that next Sunday. Um, actually, the Sunday afterwards, we're going to go into sort of the historical. Uh, Jesus speaks this prophecy less than 40 years later, talk about not one stone left upon another. When the fire was started by General Titus's troops, he had four division or four legions of Roman soldiers, and it was a, it was a bloody battle, and somebody had thrown a torch, and, and the, the temple started to catch fire that the gold was um, heated up so much, it was so thin that it, it, as it was melting, it went between the stones. So what happened was a lot of the soldiers, it was a you got to read the different historical accounts. It was a little bit of a mutiny where Titus was trying to control it, but it got out of hand. They, they moved all the stones. They plundered it. There's actually relief uh, sculptures of it, taking away the gold menorahs and stuff. Uh, and the gold melted in between the stones. Jesus gives incredible detail, because he knows this stuff, right? He knows the future, of what was going to happen in great detail. Interesting, too, is that the Jewish people and the Christians who followed his prophecy were able to escape Jerusalem before this happened, and they lived to tell, well, we escaped, we left, 
before Titus's troops continued to circle the city because Jesus gave this prophecy and they lived to tell the story. That's amazing. We really have to pay attention to God's Word. There are things that are happening in the United States and in the world, especially this globalism kick. Everything's globalism. Even charities are global. There's all kinds of things. Um, and some of them are good. But some of them are more of a control structure, a centralized structure to remove some of the authority away from the people and some of the countries. Listen, you, you, when you go to your township and you, you, know, you want to do redress and whatever, they made a mistake on your taxes or whatever, it's a pain, but you, know, you could work it out. You go to the county level, it's a little harder. You go to the state level. I, when COVID came in, I sent a few emails to the, the, the governor's office. Um, this was like three years ago. Three emails about what we were doing and trying to keep safe. You know, I didn't get one response. All three emails the government sent back to me, right? Um, and I'm trying to do the right thing, right? They sent back to me, oh, we received your email. It's three years later. They still haven't answered me. So that's the state level. I worked in government for 25 years. I get this, right? Um, federal government, oh boy, even more, you know, difficult. Global government, if, that, if we get totally pulled in that direction, good luck uh, if you want to get redress from the government. So the point I'm trying to make is that the Bible tells us all this, all these things. The Bible talks about satellite technology before it even existed 2,000 years ago. It's incredible. So let's go back to the, the thing here. I could be on this all day long. In God's Word is life. When I moved from religion to a relationship with God, and I started reading the Bible, I'm like, man, I didn't know this book existed. They never read this in the religion I went to. And I started learning things about uh, you know, uh, gl- you know, globalism and um, uh, global, global po- geopolitics and all that kind of stuff and the alignment of nations that we're seeing today. Russia, China, Iran. Wow, big time. This is heavy stuff. It's right in the scripture. So the common thread in all these little vignettes is that what we need to try to understand is what is spiritually important, right? Let's boil it down. What does God see as important? Because as the cliche goes, all that glitters isn't gold. I don't know who coined that, but Jesus was trying to explain the same thing to even his followers, that you guys are focusing on the wrong things. Hey, Jesus, we want to sit on your right hand and your left. He goes, you want to be a great leader? You need to serve people. You need to start with that. You, we, it's not like the world. We don't dominate over others. Most importantly is that John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever would believe in Him would not perish but have eternal life. So Jesus is teaching us, don't get caught up in what the world is doing. Don't get caught up in all the distractions. Stick with the Lord. Stick with what God has said, both Old Testament and New Testament, right? God wants a relationship with us. He doesn't want us to follow a mindless religion where we do rote things and we don't, we're not concerned about Him. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossroads. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7 p.m. And Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages, in addition to infant and nursery care. 
You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to www.cccrossfields.org where you can also watch or listen to previous messages. If you have any questions or have a prayer request, please email us at contact at cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless.